Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by civil rights activist, Dr. Bernard Lafayette. On May 4, 1961, 13 black and white students took two public buses from Washington, D.C., with the intention to arrive in New Orleans two weeks later. This, of course, would later be known as the beginning of the Freedom Rider movement, organized by CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. With little press and no protection, the movement protested the segregated bus terminals across the American South. Along the way, the Freedom Riders attempted to use whites-only restrooms and lunch counters in states like Alabama and South Carolina. Despite the non-violent principles of CORE, the movement faced mass resistance. White citizens, some of whom belonged to the KKK, attempted to derail the mission of desegregation. In both Anniston and Birmingham, Alabama, the mob turned violent, firebombings and brutal beatings, with law enforcement remaining indifferent at best and outright complicit at worst. There's more to the story I could share, but with the 60th anniversary of the Freedom Riders happening this week, I wanted to go beyond a Wikipedia entry or history lesson and instead sit with someone who was actually there in protest in the summer of 1961. Dr. Bernard Lafayette is that person. He was 20 then and 80 now. He's remained in the fight for racial equality in the intervening years, alongside the late John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, both of whom passed away last summer. He's the co-founder of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a leader of the Nashville Freedom Riders, and the Selma Movement of 1965. He was hired by Martin Luther King in 1967 as the program director for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. In fact, there's a photo of Bernard and Dr. King together, just hours before his passing. Which, if you haven't seen, you should. You can find that photograph in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. Com. It was a tremendous honor to sit with Dr. Lafayette in conversation. I think you'll understand why by the end of this episode. So, without further ado, 
Here he is. Dr. Lafayette, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the invitation. How are you feeling? I feel really good to be able to um, share. Glad to be here. We're grateful to have you, especially as the 60th anniversary of the Freedom Riders approaches. So what is your entry point into this movement? Where does your story begin? Well, actually, my story began uh, with the Freedom Rides from many different places. My grandmother and I were actually trying to take the trolley and it was segregated. So you could have to put your fare in the uh, receptacle next to the conductor of the streetcar. And then you had to get off of the streetcar and walk on the side of the actual uh, streets next to the tracks. And then that's where you entered the uh, streetcar. So there's one time we were uh, uh, traveling, I was with my grandmother, and we put our money in the receptacle and started walking along. And that's, I ran because I wanted to jump on the steps of the uh, streetcar so the doors wouldn't close, because sometimes the driver would wait until you put your money in, and then while you were walking to the rear on the streets, he would close up the doors and take off. And on this one occasion, That's exactly what happened. I ran and jumped on the steps and the driver closed the doors in the front, but he couldn't close the back door because I was on the steps. But my grandmother fell in the middle of the streets and she uh, couldn't get up. She was a huge woman. She was dressed in nice clothes. And I jumped off the steps and tried to pick her up. And I was too small. I was seven years old. I couldn't do anything. I felt like a sword had cut me in half. I felt helpless. When I was a little boy, they used to call me a little man. That was my experience. When I get grown, I'm going to do something about this problem. So I had that all through my life. John Lewis and I, that uh, holiday, Christmas holiday of 1960, we had already desegregated the Greyhound bus. We both caught the same bus. He was going to Troy, I was going to Tampa. He sat on one side on the front seat and I sat on the other side. And when the driver couldn't get policemen to come and make us move back, he was very upset. We decided we were not gonna sit on the segregated bus. We just bought our ticket in the integrated bus station. And now we're gonna sit on a segregated bus? No. So we decided that that was going to be out of protest. So it was no question about when the Freedom Ride started with CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, in 1961, we both applied to go on the Freedom Rides. He was accepted, but I needed parental permission. And when I sent the papers home, didn't get any answer. I called my father and asked him had he received the papers, and he said yes. He said, do you think I didn't read the papers? I was hoping he didn't read them, just signed the papers, ask him. (laughs) And he said, I'm not going to sign your death warrant. When you call your father and he says, son, I read the letter, I'm saying no. When When he's worried about your life, how did you accept that information? I understood where he was coming from and I sympathized with him. I've never said this before, but I don't know whether or not I had a son who was in college and that age, whether I would have given parental permission. I mean, I don't know. But the reason I was anxious to desegregate uh, these public places and stuff like that, et cetera, was because I wanted the older people who had lived with segregation so long, all their lives really, to at least towards the end of their lives, see some opportunity to be treated on an equal level. And I had the um, training now and the skills and I'd seen the results. So it wasn't just simply protesting about these conditions, it was changing these conditions. I knew how to do that. I understood I 
you know, how he felt. You know, he didn't want to bury his son at such early age. Did you think he was right at all, that you were signing your sort of death warrant by going? Well, I'm going to tell you, the other thing that um, sort of motivated me was the fact that there were a lot of military people around Tampa, Florida. In fact, a lot of them went to our church and my grandmother used to have them over, you know, for, for dinner on Sundays and that sort of thing. And we all admired, you know, and appreciated our soldiers and airmen. Like my first ambition when I was a little boy, four or five years old, was to be a chaplain for the Air Force. <laughs> the other thing is, remember, I grew up during World War II, so we had funerals of a lot of the military people, and they were admired, and they were appreciated, and they were, so there was a mixed feeling there. On one hand, they admired the ones who, in uniform, and we knew that there was a possibility of them returning. There was never any question about whether or not you should go to the military. So, if it's okay to go to the military and give your life for your country and your people, why would it be unacceptable to give your life to make our country more appreciative, even for those who were returning from the military who were black? So my point is, even though you're from the military, when you return, there were certain places that were segregated you could fight for your country, but you could not eat everywhere in your country. So this was your war? Yes. This is my love for my country. And to be honest, and I don't know if I've said this before, I wasn't just fighting for black people. I was also fighting for white people to behave differently. I didn't want them to be racist. I didn't want blacks to be discriminated against. And I didn't want white to be racist. It's not nice to be racist. That makes them unacceptable people to themselves and others. And I know that they weren't at their best when they did that. They were showing their worst sides. And I felt they could be better. So part of my goal in the movement was to make white folks act more humane. And I knew we'd have a better world and a better country and a better neighborhood and a better community if whites would not act at their worst, but would act at their best. So you bring all of those experiences and all of that empathy, I think, which I think is important to note, to the summer of 1961. They embark on May 4th with the plan to be in New Orleans by May 7th. At what point do you enter the story here? The Freedom Ride started in Washington, D.C., and John Lewis was able to go on the Freedom Rides, although both of us had planned to go together. You actually drove him to the bus station, didn't you? Uh, yes, and the bus had gone, had left. So we had to chase the bus down to get him on the bus. And when the bus made a stop, we were able to get him on the bus to go on into uh, Washington, then to get on the Freedom Rides. On May 4th, 1961, 13 of us, Negroes and whites, bought tickets in Washington, D.C. for a long ride on two regularly scheduled buses through the Deep South. Others said we should wait for the time to get ripe, for things to cool off. But we believe the time is always ripe. When John Lewis was uh, on that bus, he encountered some violence. But the reason he was not on the bus when it was burned in Anniston, Alabama, or when the people were beaten in Birmingham, is because he was temporarily off the bus in Philadelphia getting interviewed so he could apply to go abroad, like the Peace Corps, uh, Vista Volunteers and that sort of thing. And he had to go for a personal sit-down interview. So he was uh, interested in international things already. Now, what happened is that 
John Lewis returned to Nashville, and he's the one that helped us decide that we were going to continue the Freedom Rides. And Diane Nash was another one who was compelling. Now, I joined the Freedom Rides at that point. When John Lewis returned, I was ready to go. For context, at that point, the original core of Freedom Riders had been on the road for about two weeks on the heels of the attack in Anniston, Alabama, as you mentioned, where the KKK firebombed the bus with the riders inside, forcing them to evacuate. On May 16th, you're in Nashville debating whether to continue onward in the face of all this danger. But once you, John Lewis, Diane Nash, and the others agreed to keep going, what was the plan? We divided our group in half, and John Lewis would take the first group down to Birmingham so we could continue where they left off, and that I would be uh, the spokesperson for the reserve group. So we divided the group in half. I was to be the spokesperson for the second half. So the strategy was that you had a backup group in case if something happens to the first group. So no sooner than the group got arrested in Birmingham, the group that John Lewis was head of, they were put in jail. We launched the second group, but we also set up a full-time office in Nashville to recruit people so there would be a continuous flow of freedom riders, no matter what happened. So we wouldn't exhaust all of our group. We sent half the group by car and the other half by train. And we rendezvoused back together. John Lewis's group and my group rendezvoused back in Birmingham. I never will forget because that's the first place that I had seen the, the Klan robed. We stayed overnight in the white waiting room at the bus station in Birmingham waiting for a bus it would go from Birmingham to Montgomery. I remember staying at the bus station all night, and I went to sleep because I was tired. But while I was asleep, because we would go, and every time we wanted to go, get on a bus to Montgomery, the bus driver refused to drive. So the reason we had to stay is because the bus drivers refused to drive. And the Klan members had swarmed the bus station waiting room. And one of them got some cold water from the water fountain and threw on me. And I jumped, that cold water hit me, and I looked and I stared the Klansman in the eye, and he was waiting to see what my response was gonna be. Still had the cup in his hand, so he was not trying to hide. He wanted to be clear that he was the one that threw the water on me. And I looked at him, and you know what I said? What? Thank you. I said, thank you, because I didn't need to be asleep surrounded by the Klan in the bus station. So he made sure I stayed awake. And I wanted to appreciate that. The point I wanted to make is how you respond is very important. And I wanted to bring the best out of the Klan member. So when I thanked him for throwing the water on me, I wanted to let him know that I interpret that as doing me a favor. You wanted to bring the best out of a Klan member. Yes. Because when people show you their worst side, the best response you can have is find a way to bring the best out of them, not the worst. So that's what the teaching of nonviolence is all about. And you can't bring the best out of another person if you're showing them your worst side. Was there any part of you as a young man, a 20-year-old in that moment, that did want to use violence, that did want to strike back? Actually, uh, no, because of the training. And that's the key thing that I wanted to emphasize, that there is no exception to nonviolence training. And the training that Jim Lawson gave to us in Nashville, we saw the best, because it's not so much of bringing, you know, the reaction out of you in a negative way, because we're all human beings and have things we like and have things that we don't like. But the question is, how do you change those things that you don't like? Do you uh, say you don't like them and then you do those things? Uh, if you don't like them, then that means that you don't accept them. 
as being the best. And what you're always doing now in nonviolence is finding a way to bring the best out of yourself. And then you can appeal to others to bring the best out of them. You seem to always be thinking about the bigger picture. But in that moment, as a person in the white designated waiting room, members of the KKK surrounding you with their hoods down, they've thrown water on you. I know they're stepping on your feet. Are you afraid at all? My only fear would be that I would not bring the best out of myself. And it's not easy. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, it's milk and honey and that kind of thing, et cetera. And you touched upon it. And that is you always keep your uh, mind and your actions, your behavior and your thoughts focused on the ultimate goal, not the uh, temporary goal. I could fight. Yeah, I could could be a gang leader. I was a gang leader. But I decided that that was not going to help make a better world. And it would be better off for the people, better off for the clan members. They're human beings. They've gone through experiences in life. How can you bring the best out of them? You don't just discard them as worthless junk and dirt and all those names they call people. They're human beings. It's important to do your research and to study what's going on. How do people get that way? Well, number one, people who use violence are afraid. Fear is the, uh, the vaccine for violence. And why are people afraid? Because they're uncertain about what's going to happen to them. And they think it could be negative. Well, how did they get that feeling? Well, it's the interpretation of their experiences. And see, when you think only about the experiences that people have, then you only got half of it. It's not the person's experience that makes the person. It's their interpretation of those experiences. What is your interpretation of the experience of May 24th? Because on the 24th, you travel from Montgomery, Alabama to Jackson, Mississippi where the Alabama police are going to change the guards at the Mississippi line. What is your interpretation of that experience? Well, uh, a couple of things happened. Of course, we were confronted with the, uh, the violence in Montgomery, Alabama, even though Going from Birmingham to Montgomery, we had uh, National Guardsmen, we had helicopters, we had all kind of protection. When we got to uh, Birmingham, uh, Montgomery city limit, coming from Birmingham, all of our uh, protection disappeared. They just faded away. Helicopters, tanks, and all that kind of stuff, et cetera, squad cars and all that. It was a Saturday morning, and I realized that uh, that was very different. Something strange was going to happen. So I stood up and told the Freedom Riders, I said, now listen, we are not going into bus station. We're going to go to a mass meeting tonight. So find a partner and stay with your partner no matter what happens. Don't be alone. So once we got to the bus station, the National Guards on the Guardsmen on the bus, they went off first and then they disappeared. When we got off, there was nobody there to pick us up because we expected, as the plan was, for drivers to pick us up. Nobody was there with one cab driver. And we tried to get the cab driver to take the, the women. And when the white woman got in the cab, he jumped out, shaking like a leaf. He was scared because they weren't allowed because of segregation. That's part of what people need to understand. The Freedom Ride was not just about desegregating the Greyhound and interstate buses. They were about trying to give the local community that incentive to continue the struggle to desegregate their cities. And that's why the Freedom Rides 
One of the reasons the Freedom Riders stopped in every city along the way. Well, on into um, Jackson, Mississippi, the governor, Ross Barnett, made a statement. Come on to Mississippi. You're not going to be beaten up at the bus station here. But if you violate the segregation laws in Mississippi, you will be arrested. There's too much work to be done in Mississippi for us to have to put up with a group of outside agitators trying to stir up strife and trying to stir up turmoil among our people for absolutely no good cause whatsoever. We in Mississippi will continue to live peacefully together and we will continue to enforce the laws of our state and we're going to continue to protect life and property of all persons. I came out in the newspaper. So when we finally got mobilized and we had our mass meetings and stuff in Montgomery and we were able to make arrangements to go to Jackson, uh, Mississippi, we did not know what was going to happen. The Mississippi had a serious reputation of violence. But the governor had made that statement. And when we got to Jackson, Mississippi, we were systematically arrested. Captain Ray said three times, leave the bus station where you're under arrest. We were in the white waiting room and um, he arrested us. And that was the pattern of all those people who got arrested. Now, the strategy in terms of our nonviolent campaign was to fill the jails. We could have gotten out on bond and gone on to New Orleans. That was the destination. But we did not choose to do that immediately. We were first arrested in the city jail in Jackson, Mississippi. In fact, we sang songs and we looked out the windows Okay, for the rest of the buses coming, that's where that song started in the local prison in Jackson, Mississippi. In fact, the first time we sang that song, the jailer said, give me that radio. And <laughs> he thought that... Uh, Your voices were yeah. as good as a radio song. Well, we had three of us from the same quartet in Nashville. Jim Bevel, Joe Carter from Brooklyn, New York, and myself. Can you explain the purpose of this song and, and kind of how it goes for people? Well, when we got arrested in Jackson, Mississippi, remember the group that left out of Nashville, John Lewis and all of us, Albrooks, et cetera, we left early. In fact, we dropped out of school in the midst of our final exams. So when we got to Jackson, Mississippi, people were still taking their final exams. But we started singing. Buses are a coming. Oh, yes. Buses are a coming. Oh, yes. Buses are a coming. Buses are a coming. Buses are a coming. Oh, yes. See, we were on the third floor of the jail, so we could see the highway. And we kept looking because we knew they were coming and we wanted the jailers to get ready and so they wouldn't get the mattress and get, uh, you know, a food budget. And, you know, we wanted them to be prepared. They're coming into Jackson. Oh, yes. Coming into Jackson. Oh, yes. Coming into Jackson. Coming into Jackson, coming into Jackson, oh yes. They're loaded with those freedom riders, oh yes. They say, stop all that hollering here. This ain't no uh, playhouse. This is the jailhouse. And, you know, they never had any inmates who got excited about being in jail. That's not, that's not the purpose of jail, you know, to be excited. And here we were singing and having a, you know, we learned, we never stopped school. In fact, we had some of our professors in the jail with us. C.T. Vivian, he, he was assistant professor there at American Baptist Theological Seminary because he was on the 
you know, graduate level. And he was my uh, assistant homiletics professor. And so he used to teach me homiletics. Could you imagine being in jail and your professor is there? No. That means you had class all day long. (laughs) When you sang, didn't they threaten to take your mattresses away? Yeah. They said, if you keep on singing them songs, we're going to bring you, take your mattress. We made up a verse on that. You can take our mattress. Oh, yes. You can take our mattress. This is the first time we were in jail, the first uh, days. And so they uh, took our um, mattress. We piled the mattress up at the door. That was in the city jail. So the behavior was different based on the particular facility we were in. So city jail, that was one behavior. County jail, that was another behavior. Raymond, Mississippi, they kept us out there only one or two days because they were so violent. They beat us all up. So they had to bring us out of there. The experience was different. It was not the same for all freedom riders because it depended on which group you came in and what time you came in. Those of us in Nashville had a different kind of treatment than some of those who came later. Before you decided to embark on May 16th from Nashville, Tennessee, you were 20 years old. Many of the future Freedom Riders were students in their final exams. And many of those kids in that room that decided to go on a bus were the first men and women in their families to attend university. And you said, I dropped out of those final exams to encourage future generations. And as we approach the 60th anniversary of this occasion, but also the one year anniversary of George Floyd's passing and the summer that followed, I can't help but look at the full arc of this story. I guess I wanted to know, what do you see when you see that arc? Well, I think that some lessons have been learned from the past that you can't work on all the issues at the same time. So by identifying a specific issue and making a campaign out of it and making a movement out of it, you have a great potential to get the kind of uh, attention you need. Now, the media plays a very important role. I cannot emphasize the importance of the media. I learned that from Nashville, Haberstam. David Haberstam was a reporter in Nashville at the Tennessean. He later became a reporter for the New York Times. And he was one of the reporters, the only one, that we allowed to sit into our central committee planning meetings. And the reason why is because he could write the same thing three times in different words. So no matter how much the editor might have taken out of his first draft, the message was still there. And what was the message? Number one, that we were interested in appealing to the masses of people to support our movement. Everybody didn't have to come out and march and demonstrate, but we needed their support and we needed their sympathy. It was Napoleon who said that no revolution has ever been won without getting the masses of people involved. If if not their active support, at least their sympathy. And that's the thing that's very important in terms of any movement. If you want to change these conditions, you are going to have to appeal to the masses of people and get in their support for it. Even the civil rights bills, they were voted on by the masses of people, (laughs) the masses of the legislature. And the masses in the legislature were not black. Mm -mm. They were not black. So you have to uh, couch your message in such a way that it will win the support 
of the majority. So David Haberstam knew what we were trying to accomplish. And so he would uh, write his articles in such a way that they had uh, the effect of winning the support of the people. So when you had a economic withdrawal, okay, and that's power. Martin Luther King is the one that said, power is very important in any movement. And what is power? The power is the ability to either supply or withdraw needed resources. So in our nonviolent movement, show me the power. Then your protest can be effective if you're able to identify the source of power. Then you have to look at to what degree do you contribute to supplying the power, and then you can make a decision on how you're going to withdraw the power, and that can make the difference in terms of whether you succeed in your movements. Did you find yourself inspired by the movement last summer? Yes, I was very excited to see young people out there continuously leading the demonstrations. And in spite of the attacks on them, they came back and they continued. And that's one thing, the continuation. The next thing is when you look at the film footage, you see a large number of white students who took leadership to help make that happen. The next thing, it was global. They were able to appeal to the masses of people and even those around the world. That was very significant. The other most significant thing was the leadership of the young women. They stepped forward with leadership, pronounced leadership. They uh, can do several things at the same time because they have more nodules on their brain. You're smiling about this. Yes, because uh, I recognize it. And I have five sisters who can carry on three conversations at the same time. Most men would say, could you just wait just a minute? I'm trying to listen to what, you know, this person is saying. I can't talk uh, to three different, but women can because they're multitask, and that really makes a difference. They're multitask. And if you ever listen to uh, women talk, they can talk um, several conversations at the same time. And they also can multitask in terms of uh, organizing. In the aftermath of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd's passing, there were mass protests across this country. And in the middle of all this, your friend who you've talked about a lot in this conversation, John Lewis, passed away on July 17th. How did you process his death? Well, don't forget that Reverend C.T. Vivian passed the same, within the same 24 hours. John Luther called me a week earlier and had um, got his assistant to get me on the phone. And John Lewis said that he just wanted to hear my voice. And that's the first time that we had talked to each other, never had a conversation. And really, <laughs> he was very serious about, he didn't want anything at all. He didn't want to, it was no topic, no discussion. He just wanted to hear my voice. And you know, I was glad to hear his voice. But then five days later, and I talked to C.T. Vivian, you know, a couple of days before he passed. So losing two of my very close friends like that, the same within the same 24 hours, I am continuing to Zoom and continue to train and give uh, talks. And also when I'm here with my wife, who supports me 100%, she's right here with me. And she'll tell me when I need to eat, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but uh, I'm glad to be able to do that. And so that's why I uh, uh, appreciate sharing and making people aware of some of the history. Because if you don't know the history, then your future is uh, mystery. 
when two of your closest friends pass away within 24 hours from each other. You have such a irrepressible spirit about you. Throughout this conversation, the joy, even in the face of tragedy, it can't help but come across. And I wonder, in that moment, in spite of the Zooms you're doing, in spite of all the sharing, in spite of all the great work you've done, how did your heart feel when they passed away? Well, I had to struggle to accept the fact that they were gone. And I had to uh, continue to work at the problem with the COVID. And I had to find ways to support the family members and the close friends also. And so my mind was sort of preoccupied with what I could do for others who are still here. Because I realized that I'd done all I could for them and I could do no more than help to remind people of the work they did and the uh, important messages that they left for us and the things that would inspire us. We shared a lot and we were continuing to share a lot. It wasn't just something happened in the past. And that's the thing that, uh, that you were saying, you know, that, well, I have to go on without them. And frankly, uh, since that they're passing on, I have gotten more requests to try to fill the gap. But I cannot uh, avoid appreciating the contribution they made and they left. And that will always be with me. I have a question for your wife sitting next to you, because I've, I've been doing this for five years. No wife has ever, or husband has ever sat next to someone. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. Oh, I'm a little closer now. Nice to meet you. Hi. Hello. Kate, you've been sitting next to Dr. Lafayette for this whole conversation. I've been struck by his sort of centeredness and, and a way of always thinking about the big picture. How did you feel this past year? And how do you feel about the way he approaches the work? I study him a lot and I make sure that he is feeling well. I give a lot of attention to his health. I don't push him to be involved in things that don't excite him. I was quite concerned when he lost both of his friends the same day. It was very frightening, very scary. And um, I stood by him. You know, he did not cry. He did not do a lot of talking about it. But his grieving was so like he is now, very quiet, because he doesn't talk a lot to a lot of people. He listens. And if you ask questions like you've asked today, and you get his feeling for how things proceeded. He enjoys that. That part gives me a great deal of pleasure to know that he's enjoying this part of his life. And as you know, and you said it so well, 50 years we've been married. I'm just grateful that um, Bernard likes to share. He really does not keep things just for Bernard, nor just for Kate. <laughs> In 1853, there was a sermon delivered by the abolitionist minister, Theodore Parker. Parker said, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The ark is a long one. My eye reaches, but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I'm sure it bends towards justice. Martin Luther King would later reframe that sermon as, Let us remember that there is a creative force in this universe working to pull down the gigantic mountains of evil, a power that is able to make a way out of no way and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. Let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And now I sit with both of you 
60 years removed from that Greyhound bus leaving the station. And I wonder, do you both believe that's true? That the arc of the moral universe is long, but bends towards justice? I'll speak first and say, yes, I do believe that. And I think I learned to believe it because I'm married to Bernard and I see his way of dealing with things. And that's part of this arc that I'm looking at. I know it's going to take a long time. I may not be here to see it happen, but I believe in it. I believe deeply in it. Absolutely. I uh, subscribe to that. And so that gives me the, the faith, the confidence, mm -hmm. and it also gives me the continued courage because we realize that uh, it's going to come. We don't know when, but uh, it's going to come. It's going to come. I believe it too. I'd like to congratulate you for the interest you have in listening to these things and the manner in which you express your concern. I congratulate you and I wish you well. And excellent questions. <laughs> I, I thank you both. I, my, here's my last question because I want to make sure since you both are here and thank you for saying so. That, that means a lot coming from both of you. You two have been together for 50 years. Eventually we all transfer over to the next passage. And both of you have been in this fight for so long. What do you want to leave behind? How do you two want to be remembered? Well, I would uh, want to be remembered by the fact that we are partners in the struggle and that uh, the support that we give each other and the love that we give each other will be an example for others to follow. Kate? I guess because I've been so close to Bernard and he is a minister and he has given me a lot of things to pray about and to think about. And I just recently lost a sister. She was 96 years old and she and I were very, very close to each other. And she died in January. And I've been thinking about her memory and the kinds of things that she left for us to think about. And I guess it's been on my mind much more so than it has been in a long time. But I, I guess I think a lot about Bernard and what his image will be to people who have met him and who know him and who learn from him. And uh, I just want my family to understand that the two of us will leave what we can that will be useful to them, whether it's the sadness or the happiness or the goal that we have for them. That's kind of the way I think about being remembered. I have a lot of family on both sides and we want them to, to know that we care so deeply for them and did what we could to help them. I think that's what my memory will be and my interest will be. When I asked the question, Kate, I noticed you started looking around a little bit and I sensed that you were, you were really thinking about something. I guess I was thinking a lot about my sister who's just passed. And um, what I think about her every day, you know, when uh, I, I reflect on it, because she was a good bit older than I, but she took good care of me when I was young. So I think that's what I was thinking about. And I was thinking about the incredible love that I have for my husband and hoping that we'll always remember that. That's what I want them to know. That I never ever let him down. I think that's when I was turning around looking at him, right? <laughs> Bernard? I feel that I have been very fortunate and I feel that God wanted to make sure that I make it to heaven. So he sent me one of his angels to show me the way. I'm so glad he did. Bernard and Kate Lafayette, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you.
And that's our show. Special thanks this week to David Wilson. I'd also like to thank Kate and Bernard Lafayette. To learn more about Dr. Lafayette's work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. You can listen and subscribe to our program on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. As always, our show is executive produced by Janixa Bravo, illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editors for today's episode are Clarice Guevara and Joshua Siegel. Our assistant editor is Kevin Kaur. Our interns are Caitlin Dryden, Claire Hardwick, Jilly Harold, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Huang, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back next week with novelist Jhumpa Lahiri. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.